0: This evening's reading is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm... Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it.
1: I want to tell you about one of the greatest heists of the 20th century. Nothing was stolen. Nobody was harmed. There wasn't even any property damage done. The only person at risk was a young Frenchman called Philippe. A long time ago, he saw in a magazine an image that stirred something in his heart an image of two towers that would to be built in New York City the Twin Towers, as they'd be called. And he had a dream. So he was a man who loved the circus. And he could walk a tightrope. So you can see where this is going. So he drew a line on his paper across the two towers. And he said, I'll walk that line. And so he and his co-conspirators planned this over many months. They went to the site, they looked around, they Try to work out how can we possibly get to the top of this building? They got an inside man to got the, uh, get them passes and to get them inside, and they went up the top and they hid, waiting for darkness to fall, saying so set up their wire, and this all went according to plan. And as daylight came, Philippe stood on the corner of one of the towers, put one foot on the wire, his other foot still anchored securely in place on the building and just stopped. Because that's the moment for a wire walker. At that moment, that's life or death. That decision, do I now put all my weight onto the wire or do I step back and think about it again? And he stood there. He puts other foot other foot on the wire. This is a completely true story, and it's an astounding story that has blown my mind. Think about it, how this incredible build, these two incredible buildings are so high above the ground. This man could have so easily have died. He could have fallen to his death. But he had the confidence and the skill to walk across that wire. At one point, he even lay down on the wire. Another point, he kneeled on it to salute to the crowds who an all below. You'd have to be sure, wouldn't you, to step on that wire. You'd have to know what you were doing. Now, Philippe Petit, he was, he was quite an arrogant man. As uh, many of his co-conspirators have attest to um, in their accounts of his story, he was a very difficult man to work with. But at that moment on the wire, he knew he had to respect those who had helped him. He also had to respect the wire. He had to become very mature indeed. Now I'm speaking to you tonight who think that you're sure in your faith. I've not said mature because I think there might be a distinction that needs to be put in place. When we think of mature Christians, we may think of people who know the Bible inside out and live an active life um, with their relationship in Christ. When a storm comes, we want to spend time with them, we want to be close to those people because we think they'll give us comfort, they'll give us solace until it's past. Typically, we think of those who trust in their faith and have assurance of saving grace in Christ, being active in their lives. But being sure in your faith, I think, doesn't include all of those things. To be sure, I think, implies some Overconfidence. And being overconfident can be a dangerous place to be, it leads to incorrect assumptions and unnecessary chance-taking, testing the limits. And the problem is that limits break, where we find ourselves hurt and broken. In writing to the people of Corinth, Paul was writing to a church that was overconfident. There are arguments and differences and debates over what it meant to be a faithful Christian, and Paul wrote to try and deal with some of the concerns that are expressed in that church, and offer caution to those interested in seeing how far they can push the boundaries and still call themselves a Christian. Because many of them thought, well, I've been baptised. I believe. Surely that's enough. What else, whatever else I do doesn't really matter now. They put very little emphasis on what they actually did as Christians. They weren't thinking about Christ. They weren't looking to him. Now, Paul would agree that some people overemphasise actions over faith. But we this evening of warnings against being overly confident in a simple belief system that is starved of nurture or cultivation. So as an up-to-date example, you may think about people who say, oh, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. As long as you say you believe in Jesus, that's enough. Regular worship attendance isn't really a part of my life. You don't need to read the Bible regularly. You can just know who Jesus is, and that's enough. People like that would say that faith is not dependent on our prayers, our presence at services, or even that we become members of a church. It's just not necessary to be a Christian. For the sake of balance, yes, you can be a Christian without all those things. But the questions you have to ask are, do you know exactly what you believe in? do you know what it's all about? Because Paul warns that faith without nurture is dangerous, it's weak and it's ignorant. When hard times come, when your faith is tested and you're facing temptation, it's harder to remain faithful with that kind of weak faith. It's like walking out on a wire without having tested it first, without having trust in those who help you assemble it. And Paul frames this caution in a historical tale. He's telling people, hey, do you remember that time way back when, when our ancestors were liberated by God from Egypt? The audience Paul was addressing would know these stories inside out and would immediately be able to associate. It was a huge event and crucial in history of Judaism. So God delivered the Israelites from the oppression in the hands of the Egyptians, yet their faith in his deliverance was still weak. And then they were perceived by the Egyptians and they came to the shore of a sea and they said, oh no, surely we're about to die now. There's nothing that can help us. God again came down. He parted the seas to let them through and they were saved in the most spectacular fashion. But then they find themselves in a desert and again they complain. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to survive? Who could possibly help us? And again, God provided manna from heaven. It's bread from heaven for them to eat. And God provided water pouring out from a rock for them to drink. And as we pause at this point to look at this account, Paul presents a symbolic link. They passed through the waters of the sea as if being baptised, saved from a certain death. They're given bread and water, much like the bread and wine we share at this communion table. Just as those elements sustained the Israelites in their time of trouble, those things sustain us today in our faith of Jesus. Paul goes on to say, there are more rocky times for the Israelites. It wasn't long before some of them divulged into sexual immorality, worshipping idols, or anything else apart from God to try and sustain them. Their morals became incredibly lax. Where was their faithfulness to God there? Despite everything they had witnessed, they still grumbled, they still complained, they're still unhappy in their faith and turning away from God. It's like when you're going on a long walk with children. I haven't got children myself, but I'm pretty much young enough to remember being that child moaning, complaining on a long walk or a long car journey, saying, are we there yet? How much further do we have to go acting out, throwing tantrums, just out of pure frustration because you just want to get to the end. It never feels like it's in sight, but it just takes a little bit of coaxing, a little bit of encouragement. You can always imagine God saying to this light, just keep going, keep going, we're almost there. But like the children who reach their limit, this like stop time and time again. They had been liberated from Egypt. They still grumbled, Are we there yet? They passed through the sea, Are we there yet? In the desert, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? None of those who left slavery behind in Egypt would live to reach the promised land. Paul's writing here gives a very dark image of bodies, bodies littering the desert. It would take a whole generation of shaping and changing lives of the Israelites, changing their identity. They would need to depend and rely upon God before reaching the Holy Land. And Paul issues this command If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Life can be like the wilderness experience sometimes, periods of our life can change and feel like a struggle. It seems the world is working against us. This is so unfair. How does this happen to me? I don't deserve these cards that I've been dealt. What do we do? How do we handle it? And what is the best path to take? Sometimes that's not so clear. Sometimes it appears there's no way out of the wilderness. The next words that Paul say might seem a little bit contrite, almost a little bit rude. He says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So pretty much, there's nothing that you've faced that no one before you has also faced. You're saying you've got problems with money, with your relationships, with your work. Well, so have a hundred other people. All these problems we share together, they've all been faced before for generations. However, God is faithful. And he says, God will not let you be tempted but more of what you can bear. And when you are tempted, because you will be tempted, God also provides a way out so you can endure it. He'll liberate you from that difficult situation. He'll clear a path for you so you can understand where to go. And he can provide for you to keep you sustained. So perhaps this passage is, is all about doubt. Taking your eyes off Christ. Thinking, oh it's not all about Jesus. There must be something else that I can do myself. Because why else would I be in this wilderness? Why else do I not feel sustained? And to me faith is kind of like finding a light in the dark. Like we sang earlier. It's like when you wake up on a dark Winter's morning, and you turn on the light, that instant brightness is shocking. Your eyes water, you can't really focus on anything. And for moments you think, oh no, what if this is my life now? What if I can never see again? Imagine if your faith never went went through periods of darkness. If that bright light was in your eyes every single day, you would never know the darkness and would never appreciate the light. When I'm in the dark, I really can't see a thing. Like mornings, when I get up for work, and my wife doesn't need to be up quite yet, so I get up as quietly as possible. Don't turn on the light; don't want to wake her. Um, she would not like it. Um, and I grope around in the dark, trying to find my clothes to get ready, and it's it's quite a scary process because you're never quite sure what you bump into, what things might be lying on the floor that we forgot to pick up. But then you, I move into the living room, and I open the curtain, shut a crack and let some of the light in and then I can see where I'm going. It's not so scary anymore. And God's faithfulness and presence is like that light shining in the darkness in the midst of a life filled with struggles, difficulties and decisions. The story also kind of echoes the story of Peter walking on the water knowing what do you need to put your faith into? What do you need to focus on? And because I also mentioned uh, the story of Philip Petit, I thought you could reimagine it as Jesus on the wire. Peter standing on one platform looking out across this thin wire and he glimpses Jesus, beckoning him over, come, come onto the wire with me. And Peter knows if I just keep my eyes on him, it'll be fine. I'll I'll step forward, I'll I'll put all my weight on the wire and I'll walk across and it's fine. I see him. It's amazing. It's a fantastic experience. I'm so focused on Jesus right now. But then gust gets up. He looks down and he, he sees how high he is. He's lost focus on Jesus. He's distracted by the things around him and he loses his balance. The images within that story show the rocky road of faith and down how quickly those things can change. So looking back at Paul focusing on the Israelites in the wilderness. And being in a covenant with God is incredibly costly. In fact, it's costly for God. In the wilderness with the Israelites, it must have cost God a broken heart. So many times he reached out to try and sustain them. And so many times they got distracted and turned away and fell. Bodies littering the desert. And as Easter is approaching, we think about the sacrifice that was made. Through Jesus, God brings us back into his faithful covenant relationship with him. If we respond in faithfulness, it will cost us our lives. It will cost us everything we are. All our bad habits, all our tendencies to push the boundaries. Faithfulness costs us our identity. He's asking us to step out onto the wire. But as long as we keep our eyes on him as long as we know it's all about Jesus, it'll be okay. I believe that Paul would agree that remaining on the outer edges of Christianity is a dangerous place to be, out in the outer edges where you're pushing the boundaries. You don't really know what it is you believe. He's asking us to go inward, go towards Jesus, and to be more cautious. So how do we do that? Well, Paul didn't find a cautious group in Corinth, In fact, perhaps they're moving to the outer edges away from the focus of Jesus, but Paul invites us to move closer, and there are simple ways to do so. Firstly, we have a community of faith. Here in this church, we have brothers and sisters that would encourage and support each other. We'd laugh and cry together, celebrate and commiserate together, hold each other accountable and remain faithful to one another. Secondly, we have the waiting love of reconciliation with God, God never gives up and he'll never stop waiting for us no matter how many times we may fall. And memory also plays a part in our Christian faith. There are times when we remember events that are so vivid in our minds it's like they're happening right now. Whether positive or not, those memories bring back emotions for us. And we remember where God was during those events. Like John shared this morning of his tale of... uh, an incident with his van, knowing God was there that whole time, no matter how much pain he may have been in. Perhaps another way to examine our journey is to look at ourselves in the same way Paul directed the, the attention of the Corinthian church, the heritage of their ancestors. We look at those who have gone before us and the amazing things they've done. And we pray for Mary and bless her as she goes off to Ethiopia. And we remember her and the call that she has taken. Um, to be a part of the story there and take that as encouragement and inspiration. Paul asks us to recall those Israelites as they began their faith journey through the wilderness. I wonder what they would think of the legacy they would leave behind. What would they think of the way that Paul used them as an example? As we close, you think, what about us? When we reflect on our journey in the wilderness, what sort of example do we leave behind? What sort of example do we want to leave behind? Did we strive for faithfulness or did we push the limits and fall by the wayside? In the wilderness, I hear God urging the Israelites, keep going, keep going. I hear Paul urging the Corinthian church and their struggle to remain faithful, keep going, keep going. And tonight, I urge all of us to do the same, keep going. Focus on Jesus. This is all about him. Amen.